I've realized through my research that we are not going to solve the real and urgent and vital problems we face. We really face, you know, crossroads about whether we're going to head into a future that allows a lot of human beings to live in a decent way in the future or not. And we are not going to get to that good future, which is a possible future. We are not going to get to that good future by being nice and shutting up. 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. My name is Simon Moore and I'm a climate activist and science communicator from Leeds in England. As a contributor to Climactic, I've told stories of Extinction Rebellion protests from Leeds and London last year. I've also covered some of the community activism from groups like Our Future Leeds who are still going strong. And my last contribution late last year focused on the Leeds Climate Change Citizens Jury. Today I'm focusing on the boundary between activism and academia. And I'm delighted to be able to do that with a colleague and a hero of mine, Professor Julia Steinberger from the University of Leeds, who I'll be talking to shortly. But first, I want to give you a quick update on life in the UK right now. It's July 2020, and I'm talking to you from my home in Meanwood, where I've spent most of the past four months due to the COVID pandemic and the subsequent lockdown. The UK government's response to the pandemic has been pathetic, and at this moment we have the third highest death toll in the world at 43,906. Every one of these deaths is a tragedy, and the true figure is likely to be much higher than that reported. For me, working from home has meant using my kitchen as office space, and almost all day spent in front of a screen. With it being summer, I've at least been able to have lunch in my garden relatively often, and that's something I'm super fortunate and grateful for. As I know for many others, without outdoor space available, lockdown really hasn't been a nice experience. I think for a lot of people, lockdown has allowed us to reconsider what's important. Friends, family, food, and it's allowed us to get closer to our neighbours and our local area. And of course, in the last few months, Black Lives Matter protests have taken off around the world. And we're going to discuss that further in just a few moments. Now, to help you picture the scene today, I'm sat on my sofa in Leeds and I'm talking to Julia Steinberger, who is just across the Pennines over in Manchester. Julia, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's really great to be able to have this discussion with you. It's great to be here, quote unquote, with you, Simon. I'm sitting in our guest room. We've set up offices in every room of this house, pretty much. 
And uh, yeah, I don't really know what the outside world is like anymore, but it's good to be with you. That's excellent. For those that don't know her, Julia is Professor of Social Ecology and Ecological Economics at the University of Leeds. She's a lead author for the IPCC's upcoming sixth assessment report. What I'm particularly keen to discuss with you today, Julia, is your involvement in activism. I know you've participated in and supported Extinction Rebellion protests. You've given speeches at youth climate strikes around the UK. And I'm always massively inspired by your Twitter account, which to me is a perfect illustration of speaking truth to power. So Julia, although we both work in climate research and communication at the University of Leeds, we're having this chat out of hours. So for both of us, even this podcast is kind of on the border between activism and work. And it's that boundary between academia and activism that I really want to explore with you today. But firstly, I want to start by reflecting on Black Lives Matter. George Floyd's horrific murder has shaken people around the world. For me personally, the protests in America and the one I attended here in Leeds have really drove home the fact that society is still so incredibly far from being fair. It's really showed me as a climate activist that social justice cannot be some add-on or afterthought. It must be front and centre of how we tackle the climate crisis. Julia, I was wondering if you wanted to start by kind of sharing your own reflections on Black Lives Matter, particularly in terms of your climate research and your activism. I think as your hearers might be able to detect... I'm American, so my parents are American. I have an American passport, and I spent some years there, although I wasn't born there and I'm not there anymore. Um, I think the first thing that the Black Lives Matter protests have have done is they've just reminded me of how messed up things are in the U.S. When I was there at university, which was, you know, decades and decades ago by now, um, I remember the names of the unarmed black men that were killed by the police, Amadou Diallo is one. And we protested it then, and people have been protesting it since then. Obviously, Black Lives Matter is, is, is older than the current wave of protests. But I guess what I'm really relieved about is to see it taking on this kind of magnitude so that the world is really paying attention. And in terms of being in the UK now, the UK is obviously also a racist society with its own policing problems, but also it's it's government's problems in terms of how we treat immigrants from, for instance, the former colonies who were British citizens when they came here, but whose documents demonstrating their British citizens were actually destroyed by the government, who then chooses to deport them, which is the Windrush scandal. So there are a lot of different things coming together. In terms of my research and the climate research, um, it brings home the aspects of, you know, demonstrating that inequality and lack of a voice is violence, and that violence perpetuates itself through our societies, through economic systems, through governance systems, that it's something that you can't not deal with it. If you refuse to deal with it at one level, it will continue to re-manifest itself and get worse and worse as it percolates through the whole system. And racism in most of our societies is something that 
people in power and the white majority population have chosen not to deal with and not to not to face for generations one generation after the other and i think that we're we're seeing that come to the fore thanks very much for that that's excellent so moving on to the the topic for this discussion where do you think the sort of line should be between science and activism and where do you draw that line it's it's a good question but it's um it's obviously a bit of an awkward one i think that i've written about this as well so it's not completely unknown territory but I think there's a vision of the scientist that the scientist should not be an activist. So I think that the idea of a scientist that we have at the back of our minds when we do science or when we imagine a scientist, that there's a sort of idealized version of a scientist that does not, in fact, engage in activism, that is sort of an impartial observer, and we're supposed to impartially observe external reality, and then we inform the world about the external reality that we observe, and that's it. That is our job done. We then go home and um, sit down and shut up. And that that idealized sort of caricature of what a scientist should be is really at odds with reality in all kinds of ways, and often it's at odds with the people who will be criticizing others for being activists are often very activists themselves. It's just that they've internalized their activism as normal. So it turns out that you can't really do any kind of science on real topics without having some kind of a political position, or at least without somehow having an interface to the political world outside. And that if you refuse to think about it, the only thing you're doing in your research is perpetuating existing inequalities, existing structures. You're sort of perpetuating the dominant structures. If you refuse to think about the political sphere that you are doing your research in, the only thing that you can do by your research is perpetuate and reinforce existing power systems. And I think that that's something that's really important to realize. So even if you're doing something like physics or math, Somebody somewhere has decided what kind of physics or math is worth funding. And that person who is doing the sort of strategy of what the UK research should be or what the US research should be, in the US it was very, very strong because the military funds a lot of the research like physics or math. And that person who is is making that decision might have interests around military development, they might have interests around um, national security or surveillance, or whatever it is, that you don't necessarily know that your research is helping, but they think it might help. So I think one of the things to realize is that there's no such thing as being completely apolitical in this space, because even if you think you're just doing, you know, purely interesting, like you're just doing math because you care about math, you might still be serving somebody else's grand strategy of where that math helps them do this, that, or the other. And it's obviously even more true if you're doing something like economics or if you're doing something like environmental science. So I would say that economics or environmental science or any kind of social science, you're definitely in a political sphere because you're dealing with the real world and the real world has political actors in it and has power plays and has real struggle. And you better think about that as a researcher because otherwise your research, once again, will just be propping up existing power structures. So I think the thing to do is to, is to think about how we want our research to intervene. Do we want it to intervene on the side of 
fairness or equity or justice or transparency? Uh, or do we want it to just help things take along? And I've certainly made the decision that I do not want my research to help things take along because from my research, what I learn is that they're taking along in a rather terrible direction. So I would say that certainly my research informs my activism in the sense that my research is about observing the world outside and seeing that it's heading in a horrible direction. So in that sense, I would say my research has radicalized me because I've seen just how bad things are. In terms of my activism informing my research, I think what it does is it makes me want to say things clearly. So I think it's good for research to have an activist side because activists are very demanding. They're very harsh critics. I mean, we just put out a paper today and finally I just had to be like, stop it, stop criticizing us because all these people are activists. We're like, but you didn't do this, but you should have gone further and you didn't consider this other thing. And why didn't you do that? And it's just like, okay, guys, it's just one paper. So it's great to have that kind of engagement, but one of the things it does is it really shows that activists can be very sort of um, fierce and demanding in terms of clarity of communication. It's like, so what is your answer? I am asking you this, and you're telling me all kinds of stuff that's irrelevant. Well, go tell me, go do the research so that you can answer my question so that I know what's going on. So I think that knowing that the research is relevant to activists is really helpful in um, in sharpening the research question and really trying to get more relevant answers rather than just being interested in any old topic. You, you touched on there that the research kind of influencing you and turning you into a, a bit of an activist. What is it that makes you outspoken when many others perhaps around you aren't? And have you always been this outspoken from earlier in your career? So I'll answer the second part First, in terms of early in my career, I, I always have been an activist. I started my political engagement before I could vote. So I always have had things that I thought were worth trying to fight for. Uh, and that's the, that's the tagline of the Manchester People's History Museum, which is a great, great monument to human history. They say there have always been ideas worth fighting for. And so for me, that's that's always been the case, that there was always something that was worth really getting engaged with, whether it was fighting against the army, which was a really brutal institution in Switzerland, or when I was in the US, we tried to stop the Iraq war, we tried to stop the invasion of Afghanistan, we tried to do all kinds of things, we generally failed. My record of failure is sadly quite long, but that's the same for everybody. Now, the question of how that activism has then interacted with work is sort of an awkward one. I remember my professors when I was at university sort of letting me do this because they knew they would get in trouble if they tried to stop me. But I don't think they approved. They just knew that I was probably going to cause more problems for them if they tried to stop me than if they didn't. So they sort of let me do it after hours. In terms of this, this current situation, how my research has radicalized me is because I've realized through my research that we are not going to solve the real and urgent and vital problems we face. We really face, you know, crossroads about whether we're going to head into a future that allows a lot of human beings to live in a decent way in the future or not. And we are not going to get to that good future, which is a possible future. We are not going to get to that good future by being nice and shutting up. 
We are not going to get there by allowing the economy to continue to function as it does now. We are not going to get there by allowing politics to continue as it does now, because the transformation we need to make is so large that it cannot be characterized by a smooth transition. We're not going to be able to do this by small tweaks to the system. 30 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, that would have been a reasonable thing to do. It's like, shut up, don't do activism, don't go down into the streets, and we'll just tweak prices and taxes here and there, and smoothly things will change. That could have been a sane, reasonable, reality-based thing to say 20 or 30 years ago. Today, it's not possible to say that anymore. The changes we require are so massive that they are not smooth. What we've seen is we've seen the inertia of our economic and political systems, and they are only going to change in the magnitude and urgency that's required by being pushed. They are not going to do it on their own. And that's what's making me an activist, is seeing that urgency and seeing the inertia of the system that we're faced with. This leads on to another question I wanted to ask, which is, again, kind of thinking of those around you, given the severity of the climate crisis, why aren't all climate researchers activists? And similarly, do you think some researchers are kind of too close to governments or the existing power structures to be able to give the cold, hard truth of the massive changes that we need to make? So I think, first of all, some some researchers have been very outspoken and very active. I've certainly found it easier to do my activism because I know that I'm to some extent following in their very large footsteps. So James Hansen is an obvious example who's been going out and getting arrested. You know, he saw the writing on the wall very early and he's been really out in front as a scientist engaged to try to make a livable future for his grandchildren possible. So I would say that, you know, I don't want to say that nobody else is doing it. Another person who's really inspired me is Kevin Anderson and also Alice Bose because they've been very outspoken and openly critical of the UK government and of academia in general. So they've really sort of been willing to turn a spotlight and, you know, Kevin Anderson criticizing scientists for flying everywhere, calling them inconsistent. That's really important to have those sort of role models who are outspoken because it's very hard to be brave on one's own. So I'm not sure I would have been that that brave on my own. But seeing those other people do it gave me courage to be a bit brave. And then maybe me being outspoken allows other people to be a bit brave. Now, why are more of my colleagues not outspoken? I think there's I think there's a lot of fear. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think there's a lot of misplaced hope. So I'll sort of cover each of those. Um, I think the fear is if somebody is an early career researcher or doesn't have a permanent contract or is dependent on certain entities for funding, for instance, or, you know, in academia, you depend a lot on other people to help you out in your career in one way or another. And if they're afraid of alienating those people, um, or of not getting their permanent contract, or of not getting their research funding, or not getting their papers published because they were too outspoken. That's a big fear, and it's a very real one. So that's something that it's only when more senior people who have a secure contract, like myself, when we go out and do it, that gives other people a bit more safety. But that's one reason why people might not speak out, is because they're just afraid for their jobs. You know, they might be afraid that there's stigma against that kind of outspokenness. 
hopefully um, that's going away a bit. The second aspect I would say is misunderstanding. A lot of climate scientists are physical scientists, so they understand the physical processes of the planet, of the atmosphere, of the oceans. So that's a lot of what they deal with, or their energy system modelers or engineers, that kind of thing. But they might not be social scientists, so they might not have any kind of understanding of how social change happens. And so they're basically sitting there, writing their papers, doing their research. They might be panicking. They might be thinking, this is really horrible. But you know what? If I just write this paper, and if I just do this research, and if I just contribute to IPCC reports, eventually those people out in the social sphere, in the political sphere, in the economic sphere will have to respond. So I think they have a lack of understanding of what changes societies. And I think they have a misplaced understanding of their role in that of what they can actually do. So that they think that if we give information to policymakers, if we give information to business leaders, they will change. And that's not the way things happen. That's not reality. Uh, reality is that social change happens through the outcome of a power struggle. It's much more like a fist fight than it is like a tea time discussion where you just get to say, hey, I wrote this paper. Do you mind not growing your economy based on fossil fuels? That's not how it happens. To make change happens, you have to put an equal, a greater amount of power than the other side has, a greater amount of pressure than the other side has to change things. And right now, the power sits with the fossil fuel companies. That's very clear. So I think that that's the misplaced understanding of how change happens. And the third one is misplaced hope, which is that I think a lot of people hope that if they just play by the rules and are more polite, more acceptable to policymakers, you know, if they don't say things in a blunt way, if they don't go down in the streets with a sign, if they don't make speeches to the climate striking students, you know, if they're not, if they're sort of a respectable figure, that that respectability will be paid back in influence. And I think that's really mistaken. Again, it's a mistaken view of how change happens and of how influence and power are gained. Because Honestly, th there have been decades of scientists being polite and writing papers and sitting in rooms with policymakers and participating in, in the conference of the parties. You know, the, the, we're at COP26 now. So there's been years and years of this stuff and not much progress at all to show for it. So I think that it's time to understand why those avenues of trying to affect change are so very limited and why we shouldn't limit ourselves to them. There's no good reason for it. That's fantastic. What would you say then to a researcher who is perhaps considering activism, but maybe they're worried about one of the the things that you've just mentioned and, and how that will go down with colleagues? I think the first thing to do is, well, first of all, do it, engage, go to a meeting. There's a lot less to fear than the, 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 the what one fears is, is, completely out of proportion with the reality. And I think going to a protest, going to an Extinction Rebellion meeting, going to talk to the striking students, all of these things are, are great and they should be done and people should not hesitate. But I think that alongside that, what's really important is to read accounts of how social change has happened in the, in the past. One of the things we're starved from in our education and I've been educating myself as well, and the people who started Extinction Rebellion have been educating themselves as well, is how do we affect change as 
a group of actors who do not have political or economic power. We have very little. What we have is people power. We have a huge number of people who would really like a decent planet to live on and to not go into the environmental catastrophe at that scale. That's like the majority of people on Earth. So we have we have those people. We need to educate them. We need to talk to them. We need to mobilize them a bit. But we definitely have people on our side. We have the interest of the vast majority of life on Earth on our side, to be completely honest. So that's good. But how do we turn that into change? And the history of the world is full of examples of that. It's full of really important examples, including of, we were talking of Black Lives Matter, including of decolonization, anti-slavery, anti-segregation protests, civil rights protests, a huge number of examples to draw upon from how people started from a basis of not having power to change a system that was harmful to them. And I think that's something that we just need to educate ourselves about. We need to to learn about these examples of, of past successes in changing the world. You know, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, anti-colonization in India and other countries. And one book that I found really good because it's very good for academics because it, they are academics writing it is a book called This is an Uprising by Paul and Mark Engler. I hope I got their first names right. And This is an Uprising is very good because it basically goes through the theory of social systems and how social systems changed faced with a popular movement. So they sort of break it down in a good way for academics because they explain the theory of it. And they explain the theory of how social movements can use leverage points, social tipping points to drive their points forward and to get the change they want. So I think that that kind of education for how to be an effective activist and how to get social movements to be a part of social movements that are really going to change things because we can do this because we have that power if we use it. That's really important. And it's the reason that we're not taught about this stuff in the first place. I mean, who wants to teach? I've been a, I've been a junior high school teacher. Who wants to teach a classroom full of 14-year-olds the tricks to popular power and uprising? <laughs> Not me, right? But we should be doing this because because this is this is really how we counter the overwhelming force of you know of money, of police, of military, of large industries that are hell bent on maintaining profits despite the fact that they're destroying the planet. That's great. So you're you're not just encouraging researchers to become activists, but also teachers and uh, their pupils. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I think for me, it's it's something that I'm trying to bring into my own teaching now. As soon as, as Trump was elected, I basically decided that it was impossible for me to teach science in the way I had been doing. Because basically, I was like, how do I teach science in a post-truth world? How do I teach science in a world where the most powerful instances there are refuse to accept scientific external reality? So we need to teach about fascism, we need to teach about disinformation, we need to teach about why some forces in society are so intertwined with harmful processes that they will destroy scientific evidence and refuse to see it. And we need to teach our students how to be prepared for that. And I think seeing what's played out with coronavirus just makes that all the more important because we've seen that play out not just for climate change, but for a pandemic. So the reason that the UK has such a high death rate is because our government refused to listen to epidemiologists who basically had to come out with a paper saying, if you keep going like this, you're going to kill 
over 100,000 UK citizens, and then they finally shut down the country, you know? But they had to, they, it had to be at that level of public pressure on them because the scientists had gone public with their predictions that they finally did it. I'm going to start to wrap up now and, and ask you some slightly more general questions. They're not easy questions, but I think if you can't answer them, I'm not sure who can. Uh-oh. <laughs> Firstly, what, why do you think we have failed for so long to bring down emissions? I'm going to answer, I think, the way Kevin Anderson would answer, which is that we've refused to see the most obvious lever. So emissions go up because they're intertwined with economic activities. Right now, our economic activities are intertwined with extraction and burning of fossil fuels to use energy in various ways. And the easiest, fastest, most obvious way to stop emissions is to stop that growth mechanism. Like, if you see that data... And, you know, if somebody came from outer space and you said, you know, we have this problem of emissions and they saw the graphs of GDP versus emissions, of of economic growth versus emissions growth, they would say, you know what, (laughs) do you want to try turning off that other thing that you have control over, which is the economy, and getting it to slow down and do things completely differently? And we haven't tried to do that. We haven't tried to consume less. We haven't tried to produce less. So... I think our failure, the, the, the reason we've been, we haven't done that is because scientists and economists and engineers have been afraid to question the supremacy of our economic systems. It was a fight that they weren't up for, which is bad. It's really bad. Um, at least some of them should have been up for that fight. But you still hear within the IPCC, you still hear, you know, m- the majority of scientists will not, will not want to go there. Because I think they saw it as a losing proposition. They saw it as something that they would not succeed in doing. But the problem is that when we protect growth at all costs, we're protecting the entities that benefit from growth at all costs. And in our current societies, those entities are very much intertwined with an energy-intensive mode of production and consumption. So by protecting growth, we've actually been protecting industries, and those industries are the ones we need to get rid of. Um, so that would be my answer as to why we haven't succeeded is we haven't actually been willing to name shame and deal with fighting this very, very large and powerful enemy, which are the fossil fuel industries and their associated friends like automotive and, and airline industries, as well as the meat industry, by the way, the meat industry. And the, so meat and livestock being also very large sources of greenhouse gas emissions. A lot of people just don't want to talk about that because it's an economic sector that government protects. But the first, you know, the first step in acknowledging that you have a problem is to is to sort of state that up front. And that's our I would say that that's the problem that we have. And following on from that, what do you see as the kind of next step? You've just pointed out acknowledging that growth at all costs is the problem really where do you see us going from here what do you think is the kind of the path to overthrowing that i think um i think focusing the attention on the fact that growth is not necessary to human survival or prosperity so basically getting people to understand that this idea that growth equals progress equals good things is really a very flawed one 
And we have a lot of research to show that. I've done some, but lots of other people have done some as well. So the evidence is there that we don't need this thing. The second thing that we need to do is we need to raise the debate on what a degrowth or a growth or post-growth economy looks like. And I think it's really interesting that we're getting a lot of attention around this topic now. We're getting a lot of opposition. But, you know, I mean, it's better to be opposed than to be ignored. And so I think that that's a very interesting situation now where you have you know, right-wing American news commentators saying that degrowth is a leftist Marxist plot to do something or other, um, take away your guns, probably. I don't know. I mean, the, the usual sort of stuff that they talk about. But it's actually something that's being raised as a topic of debate. And I think the more we debate it and the more we bring growth into question, the more people will be willing to understand that this is not necessarily something that we should sacrifice everything else to. That if it's a question of what we sacrifice, the planet or economic growth that benefits the super wealthy and the industries that are causing the planet to be destroyed, maybe let's not choose economic growth then. So I'm really hoping that this discussion happens in a, in a very big way. That's excellent. And just as a, a final question then, what sort of level of involvement do you see yourself having in activism in the coming years? Um, I currently see my role as somebody who communicates research to, to tries to draw together the implications of research to a larger audience. So I very much want to be continuing to do activism. I want to have a very active role when I go to Switzerland and Switzerland and in Europe. And I would very much like to keep ties to the UK as well. But I, I really want to be part of bringing this debate, you know, raging forward as fast as we can as we can get it to go. Because I think that, you know, the hour is late and do we need more research? Maybe not. But I think what we do need, I think we need a translation of how this research matters for understanding what we can do and what we must do right now. And I think that that's something that I'd really, really like to be involved in. There's there's a lot of knowledge uh, generated out there, but there's little translation of it to to communities who really care and would really need to know about it. So I, I'd I'd see myself almost more as a, as a communication broker between activists and and scientists and researchers, and as much the social science side of of social change and how you understand economic systems and capitalism and why we're still in the problems we are, then um, uh, climate science or the physical science of climate impacts and so on. Well, that is, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for an excellent, excellent discussion and, and some really thought-provoking comments there. And it, yeah, it sounds a little bit like that kind of science communication drawing together synthesizing research and yeah i think as a science communicator myself while studying conservation i had this kind of epiphany when uh, you had this lecturer showing you data and saying you know i've been studying this this animal for 30 years and here's the decline that we saw when we started studying it and here's what's happened over the, the, the decades that we've been trying to figure out what's going wrong and it's just been declining and declining and declining and, and only only at this kind of moment well you, you almost see that the, the penny almost hasn't yet dropped for the the scientists but what you realize is they were kind of flawed from the start because they weren't necessarily talking to the right stakeholders that could actually make a difference in that scenario and 
if this was the example of say oil companies that that just were unwilling to talk um then the next the next best uh, option would be to communicate with the public and, and get that kind of public pressure to to try and change situation yeah no that's uh that's exactly that's exactly right a lot of times we're doing science in a certain framework of our discipline or whatever with the methods that we're given and we're not looking around at the superstructure of the system around and i think that that's really what we need to be doing now is really thinking about systemic change um and it's it's a big job but it's it's a scientific job i mean so we can do it <laughs> well that is excellent um a huge thank you for your time today, Julia. Really appreciate you um, taking the time to chat to me. Um, it's been it's been brilliant chatting to you today. Uh, I know you're moving on from the University of Leeds in a couple of months' time. Um, I'm very sad to see you go, as I'm, I'm sure many many colleagues are. But best of luck for you in Switzerland at, at the University of uh, Lausanne. Well. Thanks so much and come visit and we'll do some more science communication. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much, Julia. So that's all for today. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Thanks again to Mark and Climactic for having us back on and thanks to everyone who's tuned in. From your friends here in the UK, I hope you have a great day. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.